Our scripture reading this evening is from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. You'll find that on page 759 in the Bible. And we'll read the entire chapter. Jeremiah chapter 7 in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates, to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, You are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your forefathers and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart. And they went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, 
daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth and no one will frighten them away. Then I will cease, then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah, and from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of joy, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a ruin. So far the reading of Scripture. Congregation, what a, a sobering passage it is to read when we read the prophets speaking so plainly to the children of Israel. It is frightening, isn't it? And you think about certain texts of the Bible that are are frightening, that cause us to, to tremble. And one of them that always causes people, Christians especially, to tremble is Matthew 25, verse 11 where we read of these five foolish virgins who come to the very gate of heaven expecting to enter. But they hear this awful pronunciation, this awful announcement. They say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But the king of the city answers, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And I say that's one of the most terrifying texts in the Bible. The most frightening text because they thought they were going to go in. They thought they were going to enter. And can you imagine what must have gone through their mind when the delusion was unmasked? When the true state of their heart was uncovered and they came to this awful realization that they had missed heaven Ever and forever. Now, congregation, I wonder if you remember the first sermon that I preached here. The very first sermon on the very first Sunday. I preached you from 2 Corinthians 11 and I made this solemn vow before God and before you. The same vow that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. This was the text. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And that weighs on me, congregation, as the pastor of a flock, that people have been given and assigned to me, and that I am God's matchmaker, as it were, 
to bring you as the bride to the bridegroom and to see that that match is made. And that's why, congregation, this whole issue of presumption, as I hope to consider it with you this evening, is something that we need to look full in the face. Because the scripture very clearly teaches us that it is a possibility for all the people of God that they can deceive themselves and to think that they are Christians when they are not. And so it behooves us then to, to look this issue in the face and not to, not to sidestep it, not to dismiss it. I, I think there are churches that, that fall into that error. They, they, they are presumptive in that sense, that they, don't, they might recognize this as a possibility, but they just assume that because of the love of God for his people, that he will, he will be there for them. But congregation, the scripture teaches us quite something else. And that's what I'd like to lay before you this evening. This is not a pleasant message, although it has a, a pleasant lining to it, if I can say. And yet it's a needful message. It's a message that I must bring if I'm going to stand here and be a faithful pastor to you, to warn you and to point out to you this, this danger that could prevent on that last great day that could prevent you from meeting the bridegroom and from the marriage taking place. And so I ask, congregation, that you, that you study this with me this evening with an open mind and with an honest heart, with a heart made honest by the Spirit of God to look within and to know yourself, to do as we, as we read in Psalm 139, to lay your heart bare before the Lord and to say, Search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know me. And I think any one of us can consider the fact, shall we have God search our hearts here or on the other side when it's too late? Well, let's continue then to consider this issue of presumption. I put that long quote from you there from John Bunyan. I'm not going to read that whole thing, but I would ask you to read it. Because John Bunyan was a, was a man who knew the human heart. And he introduces in his, in his story of Pilgrim's Progress this man named Ignorance. And Ignorance, too, thought that he was going to enter into the gates of heaven. And he even crosses the river. He crosses the river of death quite easily. And Bunyan, in his brilliance, right, he, he says there in that third line that he crossed with, but with a fairy. And the fairy... The ferryman's name was Vain Hope. And he got across the city. And he came... Ah, I can hardly read that. It's so, it's so unsettling, is it, to read that he comes and he stands before God. And he fumbles for his, for his scroll. But he couldn't find it. And then Bunyan says, with such awful truth, then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. Well, let's look then at our text. Presumption is the subject that we hope to consider this evening. And congregation, if you take your Bible then and turn to Jeremiah 7, we see the children of Israel in a terrible condition. Fear has gripped their hearts. And before you go to Jeremiah 7, just turn back one chapter to Jeremiah 6. Because in Jeremiah 6, we have the, we have the, the context here of why they're so terrified why the children of Israel are so terrified. 
And look, it it says in chapter 6 and verse 1, Flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Now blow a trumpet in Tekoa. Raise a signal over Beth Hakarem. For evil looks down from the north and a great destruction. Congregation, this is, the Nebuch- this is Nebuchadnezzar's army that is coming down from the north. It's already gone through the, the north of Palestine and it's, it's right on the footsteps of Jerusalem. Remember, the ten tribes in the north have already been taken off into captivity 200 years earlier. But now is the judgment day, you might say. Nebuchadnezzar is coming with his, with his awful army. What are they going to do? What is Jerusalem? What can they possibly do? And you see the terror that they have there. And it continues at the end of chapter 6 in verse 22. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north land, and a great nation will be aroused from the remote, remote parts of the earth. They seize bow and spear. They are cruel. They have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses, arrayed as a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Zion. And you see the, the, the condition of the Israelites in verse 24. We have heard the report of it. Our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us. Pain as of a woman in childbirth. And it goes on. The awful terror that has gripped these people when they realize the terrifying truth that the army of the Babylonians is right around the corner and approaching fast. What shall they do? Well, in Jeremiah 7, we reach, or, or we, we come to Jeremiah uh, speaking to the people, and we see what they are trusting in. So the threat, as I've given it to you there, is Nebuchadnezzar on the march, but now we can see their trust. What is it that the people of Israel are looking to? So the picture that we're given at in Jeremiah 7 is God commands Jeremiah, the prophet, to stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Why? Because the people are entering there. They're filing in. They're filing in to to do the acts of worship that you do in the temple. And God tells Jeremiah, now speak. And he gives his word in verse 3. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. And then we find the trust in verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, that's what the Israelites constantly did. They said, nothing bad can happen to us. The temple is here. God would never let anything happen to the temple. That's where his name dwells. That's where the worship of God takes place. God himself, even though, of course, the heaven of heavens cannot contain God, but in a sense, God dwells in the temple. Certainly, God will never let anything bad happen to the city of Jerusalem if the temple is here. And so they would say, Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord! The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is what they're trusting in. Now, I move to their presumption. Because Jeremiah says that is a lying word. And now we have our definition of presumption, congregation. What is presumption? What do I mean when I say that? What does the scripture mean? Well, you have that in verse 8, and that is our text this evening. Jeremiah 7 and verse 8. Behold, You are trusting in deceptive or lying words to no avail. In other words, they don't work. They're not going to do what you think they are going to do for you. These are lying and deceptive words. You're trusting in it, and it's not going to help you. It's not going to do what you think it's going to do. Well, this is a presumption. Now, notice, congregation, 
in verse 10. You see this repeatedly in this passage. In every verse, from 10 to verse 14, I believe, you see it. Notice that it says in verse 10, Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. And that's the key phrase that I want to draw your attention to. Which is called by my name. Drop down to verse 11. Has this house, and there it is again, which is called by my name. And then verse 12, he's talking about Shiloh here. But again, he says, where I made my name dwell at the first. And then in verse 13, uh, not in verse 13, in verse 14, therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name. And then way at the end of the chapter in verse 30, we had it again. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name. Now that's a very interesting phrase. In the original language, it would be, it would be better to translate it as, as my name is called out over that place. My name is called out over that place. Now what, what does that mean? I want to take you back into the Old Testament, into 2 Samuel 12, where we'll, we're given to see and to understand what that phrase means, where God's name is called over his house. And in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 26, you have here the story of Joab, the, the phenomenal general of David, who has fought against the Ammonites. And you can see that it starts in verse 26. You see where it says war again is the subheading given us there. But in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 26, they're fighting this war and Joab is successful. He, uh, he has captured the royal city, although not entirely. Look at verse 27. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Now that was the capital city of the Ammonites. I have even captured the city of waters, or I have captured their water supply. And then Joab says, in verse 28, Now therefore gather the rest of the people, and Joab, by the way, is writing this to David, Gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, or I will capture the city myself and it will be named after me, or in the Hebrew, and my name will be called over it. So you see what, what Joab is saying there. He's saying, David... Get down here with the, with the rest of the army troops. I've, I've basically captured the city. I've got its water supply. And of course, once you've got the water supply, you've got the city, right? Now, David hasn't gone in and taken possession of the city yet, but it's only a matter of time. He's captured the water supply. So he's saying, quick, David, come down here and finish the job. Go in and take the city. Otherwise, if I go in and take the city, my name's going to be called out over the city. And, and, and again, I... I'm making this up, but suppose that the city would then be called Joab City. It'll be called after my name. And I'll get the honor. And it'll belong to me. It'll be, it'll be my city. But Joab doesn't want that. He wants David to get the glory for the victory. So he says, David, you come down here and you take the city. And then it'll be called, again, whether it would really be called this, but David City, right? It'll be called after your name. Your name will be called over the city. And you will own it. It'll be your possession and your name will stand on the city gates, and you'll have the honor of this city and its capture. And now you see, again, 
how that works in our, in our case. Because the temple, say the Jews, is the place, and God's name has been called over that temple. That means that the temple is uniquely God's possession. It belongs to Him, and it speaks about Him. God's glory radiates, you might say, from this place. God's name is there, and that means God's presence is there. He owns it, and this place speaks God's glory. And now the Jews say, and that's why this city will never be conquered by the Babylonians. Because God's name is here. God is not going to allow these pagans to come and step all over his name and run roughshod over the glory of God that is displayed in this place. After all, the Ark of the Covenant is there. The Holy of Holies is there. And all the worship of God takes place there. But, says Jeremiah, that is a lying word. That is a deceptive word. That is a presumption. And why does Jeremiah say that? Well, again, if you look at verse 10, uh, verse 9, verse 9, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, or, or we are rescued, we're safe that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? What's the point here? God is saying, yes, my name is called out over this place. Yes, this place belongs to me. But my name is inextricably tied to holiness of heart and life. And there's the presumption, congregation, that the Israelites thought that the temple of God had some kind of magical power, that as long as it was there, it was like some kind of charm, and nothing could happen to them as long as it was there, as long as they clung to that temple. And God says, nonsense. That is a lying word. That is a wicked presumption. You think you can sin all you want and then come into this place and think that somehow you're going to be safe and that I'm going to protect you and shield you? That is a wicked presumption. And then God gives them an example. And verse 12 gives us the name of Shiloh. Now, why Shiloh? Well, remember, congregation, that before the Israelites had conquered Jerusalem, and Jerusalem had become the holy city, the tabernacle was positioned and located in Shiloh. Shiloh was the holy city. Shiloh was the city over which God's name was called. This was the city that God said, My name dwells there. And my glory is manifested there. And if the Israelites wanted to worship God, if they wanted to bring sacrifices, they had to go to Shiloh. But where is Shiloh now, says God? What happened to Shiloh, which, by the way, would have been in the ten tribes located up there? He says, how did that work for saving that people? My name dwelt there as well. But look what happened to them. They're all off into exile. Shiloh is living proof that my name must be connected to holiness of heart and life. You can't claim the safety and the protection that God gives unless you are walking with me in a life of holiness. And if you trust in my name, and if you trust in the temple, or if you trust in Shiloh, that is a wicked presumption, and it is a lying word, and it will not protect you. God's name is tied to 
holiness. In fact, if you look in verse 22 of Jeremiah 7, you see these really, these astounding words. Jeremiah 7, verse 22, God says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. And you say to yourself, well, what? Certainly God did tell them about burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's right in Leviticus, chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. is all about the different offerings that Israel is to bring. But you see, congregation, God is using here, in a sense, a, 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 hype, a hyperbole kind of way of speaking. Because he's saying, I never spoke to you about bringing burnt offerings or sin offerings or peace offerings, right? And committing sin in that kind of presumptuous way. That is such an abomination to me, says God. That is so detestable that God says, I never spoke to you about it. Now, of course, God did speak to them about bringing sacrifices and offerings in the right way and in the right spirit. But this is so detestable to God that he even says, I never spoke to you about it. You know that in other, uh, is it in Psalm 50, I believe, that God says that, he's, that he's, he's fed up with the Israelite sacrifices. He finds them detestable. Bring me no more vain oblation, he says. Because God requires that the worship of his name, the profession, the taking the name of God on the lips is tied with personal holiness of heart and life. I can't say it too many times, congregation. The name of God is tied inextricably to personal holiness. It's really what's at the foundation of the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that's how you take the name of the Lord your God in vain, when you carry the name of God, but you live a sinful life. Well, that is the presumption. In congregation, I ask you now to move and to think with me about application of these truths and to think of Jeremiah standing at our church door Right? It's very easy to read of Jeremiah standing in the temple of the Lord and rebuking the Israelites. But now let's see Jeremiah standing here at this door, at the door of the Covenant United Reformed Church in Kalamazoo. And what does he say to us? How does he warn us? Well, congregation, he's warning us against the sin of presumption. And the first presumption that I'll, that I'll raise this evening then is this presumption of thinking and I just put sin in the outline there. But thinking that we, can, that we can claim the name of God and claim to be Christian, even while walking and living in the practice of a known sin, unrepented. Now, I chose my words carefully there. Let me say that again. When we live in the practice of something we know to be sin, and we live in the practice of it, the continued practice of it. I'm not talking about falling into it, but the practice of it, unrepented, then congregation, we have no right to claim the name of God and to claim the salvation of Christ. That is a presumption. Israel fought to claim the name of Christ, to claim the the salvation of God. They said, we're safe. But God says, do you think that you can steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, and come into this temple and claim my saving grace? That is a presumption. And now when Jeremiah stands at the door of our church, he speaks to us. And he says that if you live in the practice of some known sin, I'm not talking about doubtful matters now. And I'm not talking about 
we, we've fallen to sin. We know that. We confess that this morning in the form of the Lord's Supper. Right? I'm talking about living in the practice of something we know to be sinful and it's unrepented of. Now that is a presumption, congregation. In the coming Lord's Day, when the Lord's Supper is served and we're called now to examine ourselves and to think about who may partake of the Lord's Supper, then it is a wicked presumption to take the elements of God's love to us of broken bread and poured out wine. And to partake of that, which is a symbol of, by faith, taking the body of Christ as our own and as our Savior. That is a presumption. In 1 John 3, verse 9, we have this word from John. No one who is born of God practices sin. And again, the word practices is key there. He's not saying that they're sinless, right? He's saying they live in the practice of some known sin. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, that is God's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That is the first presumption that we're warned against in this evening. And now in the second place, an object, and congregation, I'm not going to spend any time on this because I don't think I need to tell you that there's no object that you can wear, no cross that you can put around your neck, nothing that you can put on the bumper of your car, Right, that somehow entitles you to the protection of God. Israel thought that the temple was some kind of charm. Well, we know that that is a terrible presumption. I move to the third one, God's covenant. God's covenant. Now, this is an odd one to think about, congregation, because as Reformed believers, we, we rejoice in God's covenant. But congregation, the devil is such a slippery character, and he knows how to take the best doctrines and to bend them to his own ends. And congregation, just as I stood before you uh, some months back and said that it was my resolve to follow what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, right? To bring you as a, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, you can be sure that it is the devil's aim every day, every hour, to drag you down to hell with him. You know that that's the case. And now the devil takes these precious truths that we have of God's covenant and he, he pushes us into it, and he pushes us to an extreme, right, that God never intended. Just like Israel would offer up these sacrifices, which God had certainly commanded them to do, but the way they did it and the spirit in which they offered it was so detestable to God that he, he throws it out. He wants nothing to do with it. In the same way, congregation, we can think about God's covenant and we rejoice that our children are included in that covenant and that we give them the covenant sign, but even that can become a presumption because we can begin to think that the covenant of God is something just kind of automatic. Why, I'm, I'm entitled to, the, to all the promises and the security of God's covenant because after all, I was born in a Christian home. I received the seal of that covenant here in the church. And now I can just go on and say to myself, I'm safe. I'm delivered. Well, congregation, there's certainly nothing more safe in this world than God's covenant. But God's covenant is just like God's name. And it's inextricably tied with personal holiness of heart and life. Jesus had this, had, had this issue with the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisee would say, we are Abraham's children. And God and, and Jesus responded very sharply to that, didn't he? You can't be Abraham's children, Jesus says, 
And Jesus says, here's the verse, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You see, the Pharisees prided themselves on being children of Abraham. But Jesus says that's a wicked presumption. He pulls that cover off. He says you don't have a right to the covenant mercies that God promised to Abraham because you don't have the faith of Abraham. Paul later will say a similar thing. You can't be a child of Abraham unless you have the faith of Abraham. And so, congregation, there's, there's always this, this extreme, right, that the devil would push us into, that we might think that we can grow up in a covenant home. And, you know, it's even, it's even uh, I feel sad that I even have to, to, to say these things, right, because, of course, we rejoice in the fact of growing up in a Christian home. What greater privilege can we have than Christian parents who bring us to Christ at our youngest days? And yet the truth of it is that the devil can deceive us by thinking that apart from our own faith and walk with God, that we're just entitled somehow magically or automatically that these blessings just come down to us without us at ever any time in our life personally taking hold of the promise of God and believing in Christ and repenting of our sin and walking with him. Those two things have to go together, congregation. And so let's be careful that we don't presume on God's covenant as the Pharisees did and think that somehow we have Abraham as our father, that we're in God's covenant and therefore we're safe. I find this interesting too because, congregation, what took place in this platform here when a child is baptized? God's name is called over that child, over that infant. And that's exactly what we had in Jeremiah 7, isn't it? That God's name was called over the temple. And the Israelites totally misapplied that and thought that they were then safe regardless of their conduct of life. But now I have to say the same thing to all baptized people here. That as precious as our baptism is, it can be so bitterly abused by us when we think that the blessings of baptism come to us apart from our own personal faith in the promises and covenant of God. God's name is called over us. What a great blessing. But it's inextricably tied to holiness of heart and life. And so we must not underplay the need for our own personal faith and repentance. Was today a day, congregation, that you personally repented before God and put your trust in Christ? You know, we're, we're, we, we think so many times of, of a day, right, when we, when we, were first, when we first believed the gospel, if you, if you can even think of such a day. But congregation, that should be the daily practice of our lives, to continually travel by faith to Christ and to take hold of him and to see our sins and to hate them and to put them to death. So we must not underplay the need for our personal faith and repentance, but neither must we overplay. Look at presumption number four, congregation, because there are those in the Christian churches, in the Reformed churches, unfortunately, who will set up a standard of experience that must be experienced before you can lay claim to be a Christian. That this must happen in your life. You must be convicted of your sins. Then this must happen. You must have this and that. And if it's this, it's wrong. But if you have this experience and then that, and what ends up happening, congregation, is salvation becomes very complicated It becomes this step and then that step. And pretty soon, so few people in the congregation even regard themselves as Christians 
because they can't measure up to this, to this complicated standard of experience that must be passed through. First this, then that. And soon enough, again, we have a presumption. Because then we, be, we, we come to the sad presumption that if we have experienced those things, we must be Christians. And so salvation no longer becomes by faith in the Savior, but by experience. Now, some of these churches are not in the Reformed churches, right? There are churches that talk about the speaking in tongues or the baptism of the Spirit in this way, that you must experience this, and then you can have assurance of your salvation. But even in Reformed churches, there can be churches that uh, decry easy believism to such an extent that they end up setting up an unbiblical standard of what it means to be a Christian. And they, too, fall guilty of this sin of presumption because God has not promised salvation to any one particular experience. Paul even talks about some of the most glorious experiences that happened in the New Testament churches. These don't even happen in our churches anymore. But Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and again, receiving a direct word from God, certainly such people must be saved. But Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, and by faith here he's not talking about saving faith, right? He's talking about a miraculous kind of faith, a faith that can produce miracles. And I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. Again, we, we, would, we would be tempted to think that certainly a person with such experience must certainly be saved. But Paul says that's a wicked presumption. God does not promise to save anybody who has such and such an experience. And so that leads this congregation then to close then with this narrow door which leads to life. And how important it is we understand, and especially as we approach the Lord's Supper. And of course, the Lord's Supper gives us that opportunity every time again, isn't it, to examine ourselves, right? Because no one may attend the Lord's Supper unless they first examine themselves. That's part of the form that we read this morning. And in this examination, we now can lay our hearts open and we can ask ourselves, am I trusting in deceptive words? Am I trusting in something that is not going to prove solid and reliable in the end when I stand before God? Well, dear friends, we need to know then, don't we? What is the correct spirit then for partaking of the Lord's Supper? What must I see in myself? What must I know? Well, again, I take you back to those words in our text, you are trusting in deceptive words. Misplaced trust, congregation, is the culprit here. There's the problem. Our trust must be placed on something that is reliable and that can hold us. And congregation, we know the truth of that, don't we? And that's what our, our form gave us this morning, that we must carefully examine ourselves to see whether we believe the sure promise of God that all our sins are forgiven us only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. You know, dear friends, I, 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 would, I would submit to you this morning that God gave us the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, for this reason, to keep us from the sin of presumption. Now, I know the sacraments can become presumption themselves, right? But when we use the sacraments in a right spirit, the sacraments drive us away from ourselves, don't they? 
They drive us out of ourselves to see our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That is what a sacrament is designed to do. When we see the water coming down upon that child, when we see the water being sprinkled on the forehead of that baby, right? That's not necessarily just to give us warm feelings about, oh, how cute that child is, right? And, oh, look what it's wearing, right? That's preposterous, right? But a baptism is to direct us, to direct us to the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. And the Lord's Supper in such a graphic way, right? Broken bread and poured out wine to direct our faith, not towards anything presumptuous, but to real words, to gospel words that will never fail us. That's no presumption. Again, our catechism teaches us what are the sacraments. The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end or for this purpose, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation. You see, you might say the sacraments are God's antidote to keep us and to protect us from presumption. And so, congregation, I say to you that the regular, intentional, and prayerful use of the sacraments is one of our best guards against the sin of presumption and the danger of presumption. If we used the sacraments the way God intends for us to use them, then we would examine ourselves. And congregation, every time we would fail the examination, we would fail it. And we would recognize that we don't have a right to claim God's salvation. And then God says, well then, I lay something on the table for you here. And if there's one here this evening who's a sinner and lost and who has no rights to the favor and blessings of God, then I put on this table signs of broken body and of poured out blood. And if there's one here tonight, you may come. If that's your spirit, if that's your understanding, you may come here and you may find it. And then I give you that sure promise of salvation. Congregation, how many times I speak to myself this evening, haven't I gone to the table of the Lord quite pleased with myself? I am a member of a Reformed church, and after all, I am a preacher. I certainly have special rights to the favor of God. Congregation, how all that has to be cut off every time the Lord's Supper is served for us again. Every time the Lord cuts us down to size again. And the catechism later will say, who may come to the Lord's Supper? And the first words are those who are displeased with themselves. Are there those here this evening? Displeased with themselves. Because then God has something for you at that table. He has something for you. Congregation, if we're pleased with ourselves, what need would we have for a Savior? For a broken body, for poured out blood? There's no need for it. And that's the blessed gospel. And the sacraments do that for us in such a wonderful way by pointing us to the only ground of our salvation. The only ground of our salvation. And we need that again and again and again in our life. And that's why the sacrament constantly recurs. What a beautiful and precious thing it is, congregation, to have the table of the Lord spread before us. I hope this week that as we look into our hearts that God would sweep us off anything that we're standing on that won't hold us. Every presumption would be torn out from under us and we would be left to say, Lord, my only hope is in that broken body and that poured out blood. 
that narrow door which leads to life. I have Luke 8, 43. I don't have time for that, but that's the story of that woman who had the issue of blood, remember? And she was so unworthy, congregation, to come there to Christ that she just snuck up behind him and touched his garment. But there was faith. There was faith in that woman. And she was healed. So many people touched Jesus that day. But she touched him with faith. May God give us that faith in the coming Lord's Day. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, how we could speak endlessly, Lord, on the glories of the Lord's Supper and what it represents to broken, poor, and needy sinners. Oh God, bring us to that place in our life. Bring us to that place, Lord, where we see that we have nothing, that we fail every test, that we say with the Apostle Peter, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But then, Lord, to come and to see that that table is not spread for those who are righteous in themselves, but it is spread for those who are displeased with themselves, for those who are convicted of their sin and of their guilt, for those who have seen so many other presumptions in their life when we trust to this or to that. But Lord, tear us off all those, all those rotten coverings that can't hold us and bring us to that rock of ages which never wavers and never shakes and which is so reliable. And if we stand on that rock, we are safe, eternally safe. Lord, please bless us then as we meditate and contemplate these things in the coming week. We pray, Lord, that in the coming week we might rejoice to eat and to drink and to hear that blessed promise. My son, my daughter, your sins, which are many, are forgiven you. They are blotted out in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray it for young and old. Also, Lord, for those who do not come to the Lord's table because they are not yet members of this church, too young perhaps. Lord, I pray that also in their hearts that you would give them to taste by faith the broken body and the poured out blood of Christ and that it would rejoice their soul more than anything else in this earth. Lord, hear our prayer and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.